Hi everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rurkraut. And today's episode is all about Ben Affleck. It's a momentous occasion for me, obviously, as a fan of this man and his ups and downs in Hollywood. But more specifically, we'll be talking about his best picture winning film, Argo, which really had a run up to the Oscars. We'll talk about the film, what we liked about it, his best director snub, of course, and get into some other movies from the year that we really liked. Yeah, this was a fun film to revisit, and I'm excited to talk about the other films from the 2012 Oscars, the award season, best picture, kind of what happened, because I feel like this was more of a fluke of a year, and we have some interesting reasons why. So we'll definitely get into all of that. I think 10 years is a good time frame too, to like rewatch movies. This mm-hmm. was after I had gotten into the Oscars, but not having rewatched many of these made for a very interesting week. And at least remembering part of how I felt at that time and rewatching now, seeing a huge change between these two moments, I think is really interesting. So for better or worse, We'll at least get to mention the nine Best Picture nominees and talk about what happened there. And then at the very end, we'll talk about if we would still give Argo the Best Picture winner today. And throughout the discussion, I think it'll make sense for a lot of those other big awards to come up as well. Yeah, it's so funny because friend of the pod and friend of real life, Bennett Prosser, reminded us this week that he watched these Oscars with us in Columbus. And I was thinking, like, oh, my God, I was 19 when we watched these Oscars. Like, that's so young. So I will say these rewatches were very fun. And it was good to, I think, go back and see how my opinions on some of these movies Mm -hmm. have maybe changed. But also that, you know, some things just aren't going to change for me. And that is okay too. (laughs) My taste is very similar today to how it was back then, as I'm sure you remember. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like you've been steadier than me, which I don't know what that says about us, but... It's just funny. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save some of our comments for that, I think, when we get into the Oscar ceremony, but let's start out and talk about Argo. Description here. On November 4th, 1979, militants stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, taking 66 American hostages. Amid the chaos, six Americans managed to slip away and find refuge with the Canadian ambassador. Knowing that it's just a matter of time before the refugees are found and likely executed, the U.S. government calls an extractor, Tony Mendez, played by Ben Affleck, to rescue them. Mendez's plan is to pose as a Hollywood producer scouting locations in Iran and train the refugees to act as his film crew. This was directed by Ben Affleck, It also stars John Goodman, Alan Arkin, Brian Cranston, and more. It has a fabulous ensemble cast. I mean, it's just loaded. And I think one of the most successful things actually about the movie is that he really casts great actors in the smallest parts. Like, even if they're just coming on screen for one scene, it's an actor who's recognizable and who delivers. Yeah, I feel like every actor that kept showing up was made to be in a war movie. Mm-hmm. The ones you mentioned, we have Victor Garber, Clea Duvall, Kyle Chandler, Chris Messina, Richard Kind, just the list goes on and on. And every scene with a new actor was like, oh, my God, they're so good in this. So that was fun because it's also this story about Hollywood. 
So you're seeing all mm -hmm. of these familiar faces. And I think the degree to how many A-listers and really well-known celebrities are in here is just another layer to why this movie works so well. Yeah, and you really get three movies for the price of one. Like, if you think of how the movie opens and you have all of your DC people, like all of your CIA people, those cast members, like, of course Kyle Chandler is there mm -hmm. in a type of role like that. It just makes sense. And then you have the Hollywood part with John Goodman and Alan Arkin, which is my favorite part of the movie. I think that it's just the most engaging and fun to watch. And then you have that fantastic third act, which is so much fun and so gripping, getting you all the way to the very end. And I do agree. I think that everyone is cast so perfectly to take you through these three very distinct but interconnected parts of the movie. So I really like that too. Not only that final act, but the very beginning, it starts out as a history lesson teaching you about the Middle East. And then you get the first 12 minutes, which are a nonstop terrifying thrill ride that again continues for the final 30 minutes of the movie and I think that's why I also didn't rewatch this because I could remember how I felt and how anxious I was and like to be shaking crying at the end of this movie was just insane for a rewatch so that was fun but my god it just takes you through it thinking back 10 years ago we didn't see this one together I saw this one with my dad. I do remember that. So I didn't see this with you, but were you like audibly sobbing when you saw this for the first time? Or is this like a new thing from rewatch that you were just very emotionally moved by it? I don't remember my initial watches as well as you do, but I definitely was crying because that moment when they're on the plane and she comes mm -hmm. on the speaker and they start drinking champagne and they're hugging it you just feel the relief and I could remember that feeling at least maybe yeah. not like the act of crying but I knew all of those emotions were there <laughs> I think what works well about that part and what makes me emotional when I watch it too you know I'm not sobbing ugly crying like you mentioned that you were but I do have a tear in my eye a little bit and I think it's mm. because of that score by Alexander Desplat in that moment where it feels like an old Spielberg movie. Like you just have that oh, yeah. big triumphant moment that just feels very 90s. And I think a lot of the movie feels much more indebted to these like 70s paranoia thrillers. But, you know, Ben Affleck giving us a couple different endings here feels very, um, very much like Spielberg. And that, of course, is always something that can make you emotional for sure. I mean, it's not only their triumph, but it's the culmination of these three stories coming together. It's them being heroes, Tony coming in, saving them. It's all about patriotism and in a way how Hollywood saves America and this hostage crisis. It's funny when you dilute it down into just a few words, but that is the essence of what this movie becomes and is. And that's probably why it resonated so well. It's being so many things and I think that brings more audiences together that can appreciate everything going on yeah it's also I think even though you've only watched it once I do think this movie is very rewatchable like it's it's very easy to put on and get sucked into and it's easy to understand I think sometimes with 
political thrillers, you can get like very bogged down in the details. You know, all of these like memos that are getting thrown around and certain types of legal jargon. What does any of this mean? Mm -hmm. I don't really understand, but sure. That's not something that really happens here. And I do think that that's due to the screenplay, most of all, but also because we have that Hollywood component, you kind of are let off the hook a little bit. Like you don't have to stay too long in politics. You don't have to know too much about the hostage crisis going in because then you have this easy story that that you get thrown into that anyone who's watching movies can appreciate or can enjoy, which is just what if we made a fake sci-fi movie? What if we make what do they call it? A $20 million Star Wars ripoff. That in itself is like a story that's too good to be true and can pull in a majority of audiences as opposed to something that is just complete darkness, like Zero Dark Thirty, for instance, which we can talk about later when we get to our Oscar Mm -hmm. section. Yeah, there are definitely quite a few differences between those two movies since those are our two war movies from the Best Picture lineup. Both are great. I think Zero Dark Thirty is great, but there's a reason why that's not here. And talking about the screenplay, this entire script is filled with one-liners. Everything that everyone says is punchy, but it has a point and it keeps you intrigued, which can sometimes seem over the top if it's in a comedic sense, and a lot of these are, but it's still pushing the narrative forward. And what I really like about the Hollywood part kind of what you were hinting at is that you get to breathe for a minute. These other two stories are so intense that when Tony is watching Battle for the Planet of the Apes and he gets this idea and then he introduces it, you kind of get to sit back and relax for a minute and you're like, wait, this is what they're going to do? And then you start to have fun with that, which again allows you to have like excitement instead of just intense focus on ensuring that they live through this moment in time. I think having Alan Arkin and John Goodman on that end was so perfect of a combination that like at this point, to me, John Goodman brought in The Big Lebowski and Alan brought in Little Miss Sunshine, another Best Picture nominee that I will mention later on as well. But their personalities just meshed so well together and they had so much fun. And again, even towards the end, when they're trying to reach that phone, the intensity comes back like they're not excluded from any moment of this movie's incredible editing by William Goldenberg. Oscar winning editing. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned the Oscars yet. We will get there for sure. So John Goodman plays John Chambers, who actually was an Oscar winning makeup artist. And then I think what is also smart about the movie is that Alan Arkin is sort of playing himself here, but I enjoy that just fine. Um, But his character... Lester Siegel, he is not based on a real person. So he's one of the few people in the movie who's actually just a creation of the script. And I think even when your movie is based on a true story, like that type of writing can suit your movie really well if you just need like an additional character that you want to create to bring um, some sort of humor or levity to your script. I also think another reason why people in Hollywood responded to this and viewers who were kind of maybe thirsty for some type of like old Hollywood film or 70s film, hearing those names thrown around like Rock Hudson, Warren Beatty, bringing those sorts of people into the script, into the dialogue, that will always also keep viewers engaged. And when you have that also sort of like inside baseball industry talk, 
Academy voters pay attention to that, but also like people who love movies and love Hollywood want to hear that too. So I think that's part of the reason why I like that section as a movie fan. Yeah, the table read, walking through set at the very end, their costumes, this makeup, that was all very fun. And it is like being backstage. You're getting an inside look. So you mentioned how this ending makes you cry. I do think this is a really, really good movie ending. I'm not talking about all of the additional endings that he tacks on to this. Mm-hmm. I'm talking specifically about the plane taking off <laughs> because that moment, I think it really is like just so tense, especially due to the editing. You have the police cars chasing them and people wielding guns at this plane, like figuring out that it's the Swiss air flight. You actually think that they might catch them. So when Chris Messina says like wheels up, mm-hmm. and like, hold on, <laughs> like you just have to wait for that. And then it's just like a typical greeting that you would hear like a normal commercial flight that you would take. But everyone is just so excited. And then you get that desk plot score. It's really good. It's that happy moment that viewers look for when they're going to the movies. Like they want something like that, that moment of triumph that sigh of relief that you get in this movie Mm -hmm. after so much I think stress and so many tense scenes the police chase for me is a little cheesy that wouldn't actually happen Mm -hmm. no and reading that a lot of this third act was at least a little bit fabricated I will allow it you know that (laughs) yeah with a lot of these I'm just like sure it's a movie Mm mm-hmm The movie is overwhelmingly successful, so it's like this one little part is totally fine. Plus, it works with the energy. I think adding it, it makes sense. And what also got to me was that like the stubborn character, Joe Stafford, played by Scoot McNary, is the one who actually knows Farsi and can communicate with these guys because otherwise they're just looking at them because neither of them speak the same language. So for him to talk to them, to talk through the script and the stills it like also is heartwarming because you know he was worried that it wasn't going to work the plan had no chance of working they were going to get caught and like he was the one who made it work in the very end you know it was dependent on everybody and him helping out like gave me chills so for them to get through then again the editing is really good here and cross-cutting between the plane and them eventually finding out running through the airport So before we move into our Oscar section, how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think it would still do very, very well. I feel like not that much has changed in 10 years, but it is interesting because Ben Affleck was recently interviewed by Entertainment Weekly, and in the article, he said that Argo couldn't be made today, that it's not big enough, it's not IP, that that is where Hollywood is going that they're going to make 40 movies a year. It's going to be all IP. Like, that's awful. But he was like, this would be a limited series if this were made today. Wow. The way that my guy and I have the same thought, and I didn't even read that article because I was about to say this would definitely be a limited series on HBO or Prime. Like, that is just completely how I see this. It would not be a film with as tight of a runtime. I think we also have to credit Ben Affleck for that because I think in another director's hands, this would be two hours and 12 minutes Mm -hmm. and you would get a lot of bloat in other places. Um, This, I think he definitely spends more time on the story and less time on like character backstories and going too far into things he doesn't need to. He just kind of gets right to the point, which I appreciate. But I think that, yeah, today 
it would absolutely be a limited series and that makes me sad because we have so many limited series and we do not need another one we need more movies but I do think if this movie did manage to come out today I still think Hollywood would respond to it in the same way um, that it did back then because it's a story about Hollywood ultimately in an important historical event that a lot of people who are like voting age remember I also think Ben Affleck is at an interesting point now. It's kind of similar to where he was in 2013, 2012, because he's on the up and up again. This was his comeback. This was him like proving to Hollywood that he could make movies, that he could do it. It was after Geely. It was after his engagement to J-Lo. And he had sort of started to kind of be taken seriously again. Since Argo, he totally fell down again, right? Like, <laughs> he got a divorce. He was in those awful DC movies. He hadn't directed another thing that was really good. And now, I mean, he's had an intense glow up. He got married to JLo. So I feel like he's at a point in his career that's sort of, it's a second wind of mm-hmm. sorts. So I feel like if he made a movie like this now, I think it would still, I think he would be appreciated maybe in the same way and the movie would be appreciated in the same way. Yeah, looking at IMDb, seeing he only directed Live by Night after Argo in 2016. Yeah. But now seeing that he has seven movies in production, including an Agatha Christie adaptation of Witness for the Prosecution. Let's make him our Agatha Christie director instead of you know who Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, let's let's cut let's cut him out and let's put Ben Affleck in. <laughs> There's another movie he's writing with Matt Damon about Nike. So, yeah, I think things are definitely looking up for him. I am very worried, though, I will say. You know, I saw Chinatown in theaters yesterday, and it was just such a glorious, like, transcendent movie experience. I was just so moved by the end. Just like, wow, this is just a perfect, essential piece of art. And I know that Ben Affleck is supposed to, and in talks to, adapt The Long Goodbye, the fantastic book by Sam Wasson about the making of Chinatown, about Roman Polanski, about Robert Town and Robert Evans. He's supposed to make this and I really don't want him to. Like, I just, I don't think we need this as like a, as a Chinatown fan. But if he does, I will watch it just because I have an intense morbid curiosity about it. But I will look forward to the other projects instead. It's the big goodbye, everyone, (laughs) not the long goodbye, (laughs) which is an Altman film on the brain, clearly. But also Ben directing himself acting, which is what's happening in Witness for the Prosecution. But also here, where I think he looks the best that he's ever looked. Him and Argo is... That's high praise. Yeah. I think the beard is at a good length. He's 10, 12 years younger. It just totally works. I mean, you're totally rooting for him the entire time. Yes. I love a good 70s wig beard combo and this one is great no notes (laughs) but yeah I mean I I do usually like Ben Affleck I give him a lot of passes and I feel like here this is like this is top tier Ben Affleck for sure I agree with you and like directing himself to that Mm -hmm. of course you know good job so how about any snubs for this movie what do you think so hmm Looking at its Oscar nominations, we had seven. So it won picture, adapted screenplay, and editing. It was nominated for sound mixing, sound editing, 
supporting actor for Alan Arkin and original score, I'm going to say Rodrigo Prieto's cinematography. Mm-hmm. That's who I was going to say, just because, I mean, he's a legend here. He's doing the cinematography for Killers of the Flower Moon, which is so exciting, but it is otherwise kind of your standard fare of a thriller. Everything works. What I like is that, again, the acting is good, but in adapting the script, they didn't try to showcase any of the actors. Like, they didn't give Tony this big emotional, loud scene to try to get him nominated. Alan Arkin is Alan Arkin, and just like Tommy Lee Jones and Lincoln, I feel like (laughs) they pop by being themselves. Mm -hmm. So I also really like that, you know, everyone is kind of on the same playing field, and... In that same way, it's enjoyable, but nothing else really stands out as like a snub. When I looked after the movie to see what it won, I was like, that makes sense. Those are three good wins for a movie. I mean, a bit bizarre, you know, of a combination, but it was like it deserved here, it deserved here, it deserved here. It's a solid combination for Best Picture to have editing, screenplay, and picture as your quote-unquote path. I think so what you said about like Ben Affleck's acting and like the performances is smart because Bradley Cooper fans close your ears. I'm going to turn on you for a minute. I think one of the fatal flaws of the 2018 version of A Star is Born is that Bradley Cooper makes the movie more about himself. And I think it's hard for actor directors maybe to not do that. I mean, Barbara Streisand did it from time to time. Warren Beatty certainly did it. Bradley Cooper's doing did it in A Star is Born, where in the reason why the second act of the movie, A Star is Born, doesn't work as well for me is because it's about him and not about her. And I found like Lady Gaga's Alley to be more compelling. And I feel like that was just sort of a flaw in mm-hmm. an actor-director directing himself. And I feel like one of the smarter things about Ben Affleck's direction here is that he doesn't give himself those big moments and maybe that's because he knew that that wasn't really what the movie needed I think also kind of being down at the time being doubted not being taken as seriously maybe helped him here because he's like I'm I'm making this movie but I'm not going to be like here I am this is the part that you need to remember me for he lets other people shine it feels much more like a team effort the movie does it feels Mm -hmm. like it's just it's working all of the parts are working together as opposed to just letting one actor deliver Mm -hmm. this amazing performance that people are going to rave about. Which fits his character so well, too, because he kind of slinks in the Mm -hmm. background for the first time once they say the project is shut down. You know, they, they can't go forward. He takes that bottle of bourbon or whiskey to his room and leaves and doesn't talk to anybody. But then after the big moment, I feel like he's just kind of gone. He kind of, you know, he goes home and... He sees his wife or ex-wife, you know, and that's that. It was the mission, even in getting the intelligence award, like they have to take it back when they give it to him because it's classified. Mm -hmm. So I think that all of it fits so, so well. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? It has to be for editing. In feeling everything I felt, all of the intensity, it's not showy, but I could tell watching it, I was like, this is the reason why I'm so crazy right now is because I'm thinking of all of these places at the same time and it's doing such a good job of 
keeping me intrigued, keeping me in the moment, guessing what's going to happen next. And William Goldenberg, who also worked on Zero Dark Thirty, definitely deserved the Oscar here. What would you give it? I would also give it editing. I feel like that's my favorite aspect of the movie. I think it's cut together very well. The pacing is great. You know, having these three intertwined stories works very well for it. And it's part of the reason why it's so suspenseful. So I, yeah, I think it's a great win for it. So getting into the 2012 Oscars and award season now, just some precursors for the season at LAFCA, it won Best Screenplay. And then at New York Film Critics Circle, it won Runner-Up for Best Film. At the Golden Globes, it won Buzz Motion Picture Drama and also Best Director. At BAFTA, same thing, Best Film and Best Director. I think the wildest thing to me, looking at just the wins from this season, I feel like it's rare that we have the same movie winning PGA, DGA, WGA, and SAG Ensemble. That's such a big deal to have a movie that just is so embraced by so many branches. Ampus like has its own things and its own discrepancies, right? Like to give a movie SAG ensemble, but then for only one actor to get a nomination or to win DGA, but then to not give that director an Oscar nomination, right? It's weird. It makes the season like seem really odd. But I think a thing that I noticed, like looking at these, was that the voting for like DGA, for example, like that happened after Ben Affleck was snubbed by the Academy. Mm-hmm. His win for BAFTA also happened after he was snubbed by the Academy. So these groups nominated him, but I think you do have to wonder how much was his comeback narrative a part of his winning? Because if he would have made it, you know, if the director's branch, which is like a little bit pickier than some of these other groups like DGA, which is incredibly populist, like would he have won? He probably would have if he could have gotten through that that hurdle. But then you have to think, right, like if he did get nominated, would he have won at these other places? Like we don't we don't really know why Mm -hmm. that happened, which I think is interesting. Some people think the timing of everything was part of the chaos because the Oscar noms wanted to be out before the Globes. They were hoping they would steal their thunder. Do that again. (laughs) (laughs) But it just didn't work. It didn't correlate. And so there was that mess. And then with the guilds, like DGA, two Oscars, they were off by three, which usually it's like one, maybe two, but not three. And especially leaving Ben... Catherine Bigelow and Tom Hooper out. Those were two or three big Best Picture nominees. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on Catherine Bigelow and what happened to her with the reception to Zero Dark Thirty and how she was sort of blamed for all of the controversy around that um, from within like the security and intelligence communities. I think people were really, really put off by the politics of the movie, by the way that it depicted torture, what it was saying about torture. And I think I do think that cost her a nomination and why the movie didn't do as well as like people thought it would do when it came mm-hmm. out and got rave reviews at the beginning. Tom Hooper for Lame is that man is just going to be himself, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and then with BAFTA and SAG and Oscar Jennifer Lawrence and Daniel Day-Lewis don't count because they were going to win all season. They're fine. Daniel Day-Lewis always counts. Excuse me. (laughs) 
That's not what I mean. I know. I'm just teasing. But Emmanuel Riva and Christoph Baltz both won at BAFTA and weren't even nominated at SAG, which opened up the field for which Jessica and Philip, I think, should have won. But I think not showing up there kind of screwed things up for the Oscars because people thought Emmanuel was in to win. They didn't necessarily think Jessica had a chance, but also with Christoph, Tommy Lee Jones won for SAG, but then Christoph showing up later on for a performance that was very, very similar to Inglorious Bastards and his win there. You know, it threw a wrench in the conversation where it didn't need to. I remember being shocked when Christoph Waltz won supporting actor like Mm -hmm. I remember that one just being like what like how did this happen how did he do it again I feel like he just won Mm -hmm. and again like that was pretty early in us doing serious predicting whatever that means but I remember being very thrown by that one and of course I mean if we want to get into best actress for a second I never wanted Jennifer Lawrence to win I don't think that performance is any big deal and I was really bothered by her win and she's in fourth place for me in that lineup. At the time, I feel like I wanted Emmanuel Riva, but certainly not Jennifer Lawrence. I've always been firm on that, <laughs> that one. It's the Margot Robbie conversation of today. Wait, is, uh, no, I can't. <laughs> With Babylon, but... I just, I'm sorry. If, if you're under the age of 40, you are not overdue <laughs> for an Oscar. Come up with a new argument because that one is not working for me. That's all. We're mentioning a lot of other movies and a lot of them are the Best Picture nominees, but we'll list them here. We'll talk about some others that we think should have been nominated instead. And then we can talk about this list, make up a quick top five or our favorites, and then discuss more about Argo's win. But the nominees for Best Picture this year were Amour, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. A good amount of these movies made a lot of money at the box office, which is very interesting. I think if you're looking at the field of Best Picture nominees, I think in the expanded era, this type of lineup is what the Academy's goal really was. To have a showcase of movies like this from different genres that the public actually liked, right? You have war films, you have Spielberg, you have Tarantino, you have a musical, you have a Michael Haneke indie, which is incredibly depressing. You have this like beautiful spirited little indie like Beasts of the Southern Wild. So I think you have like really good representation here of different types of films and filmmakers. And there's really sort of something for everyone, which I feel like you don't really see that often in Best Picture lineups. Yeah. And talking about the box office, the top five, Django was in fifth and made $68 million. You cannot say that about Best Picture lineup today. No. And that goes up. So Les Mis was next, Life of Pi, Argo was in second, overall 25th with $108 million, and then Lincoln at 19 for the year, which is insane that this was the number one box office from this lineup, made $134 million. I saw Lincoln the day after Christmas in a sold out show. Like that is so, so weird to think about happening today. Mm -hmm. Everyone in their family is just going to see Lincoln. (laughs) That is what you think of when you think about the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, people just going to movies and seeing these epics, this biopic about a president. Right. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? But yeah, I think before we talk about these movies, 
Let's talk about some movies from 2012 that were maybe too cool for the Academy. Some honorable mentions that we would throw in. My first one, the most obvious one, is Paul Thomas Anderson's film, The Master, which the people who hated The Master, I remember this even at the time, loved to hate The Master. I, however, was one of those people who had like pretty recently discovered Paul Thomas Anderson. I really started to love him when I was in college, and this movie was a big part of that. I felt really seen, and that's weird to say about a movie that's about cults, that's about Scientology, but yeah, I just, I felt like I was just understood on this like academic and weird level, and I just love the performances in the movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Joaquin Phoenix, the cinematography, ugh, the score, everything. I just, I love it so much, and Paul Thomas Anderson would have been my winner for Best Director this year, and... This is just, it's one of my favorites, and it's a shame that the Academy turned up its nose at it, because it is just, it's its that good. It's such a smart and beautiful film, and I do really love these performances. Not only Philip, but Joaquin, Amy, they're just all masterclass performances of this very odd premise, but also beautifully, beautifully shot. My entry... I have like a bad entry that I like that wouldn't actually happen, but my actual entry is Holy Motors, which was a French film that came out. It wasn't nominated even for foreign language because Amour was there and that was the front runner. That was their submission. This is just the wildest of wacky films and it is totally a joyride. You have this bizarre actor, this character who goes through these vignettes performing as these very odd people and you learn that he's on tv it's this show but there's also this like love story happening and kylie minogue is there always appreciated they're like talking cars it just it gets very weird but it is so fun and i would have loved to have seen this show up somewhere it very much deserved it i agree leo's carrick's I, who I adore, everyone who heard me talk about Annette all last year, Holy Motors is one, I mean, definitely my top five, I would say from 2012. I love it. I have to tell you that I recently watched and loved Stories We Tell by Sarah Polly, which was <laughs> this year. Yay. Yes. I would definitely put that in just a wonderful, like beautiful documentary that I would recommend to anyone. And I would say, I think another one, I mean, you mentioned Holy Motors, I really liked Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson film, which was supposed to, I think, get a nomination. A lot of people thought it might, but it didn't end up making the cut. And I really like it. It's one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies for sure. I know that people like to think his movies are a little bit twee, and I totally get that criticism, but I think that this is just a really youthful, surprising beautiful little story. So, I would also pick that one. My other choice is Cloud Atlas. This is Oh god. <laughs> Where are you on Hanks in Cloud Atlas? The true, true. I like always think about him saying that. (laughs) (laughs) I always love this movie and I never knew that it was so hated by so many people for a while. (laughs) This is not a case though of like the time you nommed instead of bombed extremely loud and incredibly close. It's not one of those instances. I think that this is a more respectable pick. Okay. It's a rewatch I do need to make happen again, but this is from the Wachowski sisters and Tom Tykwer. Again, an all-star cast. 
I mean, I understand maybe the adaptation is weird. I've always wanted to read the book, but melding these worlds, it's futuristic, it's sci-fi, it's fun. Yeah, it's also a bit outlandish at times, but again, it's an experience. It is almost three hours too. (laughs) I do think you need to watch Altman's Shortcuts if you like this. That's all I'll say about that. (laughs) I will, I promise. Okay, good. Yeah, so I think any of those that we suggested definitely would have been fun entries. So we mentioned what our Best Picture nominees were, and we touched on Ben Affleck being snubbed for Best Director. That was, I think, the story of the season. I remember watching these nominations come out and being really surprised that he wasn't nominated and it being this big deal, like... Sorry, you're not Robert Redford. You're not Warren Beatty. You're still Ben Affleck. You're not getting this. Like, I still, I remember thinking that at the time. And our other nominees that we had, Ang Lee, he ended up winning for Life of Pi. We had Michael Haneke for Amour, Ben Zeitlin for Beasts of the Southern Wild, Steven Spielberg for Lincoln, and David O. Russell for Silver Linings Playbook. It's a crazy lineup, definitely a shakeup from DGA, like you mentioned. I'm sure this year like drove pundits mad, which that's always the best kind of year, I think. Give people surprises, but mm-hmm. not necessarily in this case. I personally, like looking at the lineup, love that Hanake got in. I'm a fan of Amor, as depressing as it is. But Ben Affleck, not here. Catherine Bigelow, not here. Why do you think Ben Affleck was snubbed? And I guess, do you think he deserves to be here? It is really interesting that two indie films both got in for director. I guess Haneke is more of your international feature slot. But again, it's very bizarre. I don't know. You have to think that it had to have been very close. With all of these being Best Picture nominees, I have less of an answer for why he didn't get in than why he won. But I think... The movie had such a good reception, it's just, it's still shocking for him not to have shown up. I don't know if people, like, didn't believe. They thought it maybe was a fluke. He only has The Town and Gone Baby Gone before this, and both of those are great. I love both of those. You're a Ben Affleck fan. A director fan, I am. (laughs) Why do you think he didn't show up here? I think that there are many things I think you can, like, point to that could maybe help to explain it. I think the first, if you just look at the movies that are listed, the Academy really liked a lot of these movies. Life of Pi, for instance, won the most Oscars. Like, it won four. Lincoln had the most nominations. And it's Steven Spielberg. Ang Lee had also already won before. The Academy also loved Silver Linings Playbook. Like, it was getting in everywhere, including acting nominations in all four categories. I have to say, as someone who was obsessed with Bradley Cooper at the time, this was so exciting for me because he got his first Oscar nomination and I was so thrilled, I remember. And just thinking like, oh my God, like maybe, maybe he has a chance. But then of course, like my my first love, Daniel Day-Lewis was always going to win. And then I think like Haneke and Ben Zeitlin are the, the surprises that sometimes like pop through with the director's branch being a little more selective, being more international, being more independent oriented, going against your bigger blockbuster hits. In a way, 
Argo is similar to like an Ocean's Eleven more than something like the Parallax view. So I, I also think like style of direction, while I was very nice about this movie, I would say in a review, there is something there that's, that says, you know, okay, Ben Affleck is very interested in making a Sidney Pollock movie and making an Alan J. Pakula movie. But this movie doesn't have like any of the bite to it that any of those 70s paranoia thrillers have. It doesn't have like any tangible evil under it, anything that makes you feel really unsettled. It's much more straightforward. It's much more of a a movie that I think would connect with the populace, but wouldn't necessarily connect with the director's branch, like being some great directorial achievement. I also think there is, there's a bias that exists when actors decide to make a movie. I think that sometimes filmmakers, and even though this was his third film, they could be like, you were in Geely. Are you sure Mm -hmm. you're one of us? I definitely think that that's possible, that that could happen, and they didn't take him seriously necessarily. So I feel like when I think back to this year and when I think back to that snub, I always think, one, it's not the directorial achievement that it wants to be. It feels much more like something from the 90s or the early 2000s in a lot of ways. I'm not saying that David O. Russell deserves to be here because he doesn't, but I would also put Catherine Bigelow in here and PTA. So, mm-hmm. In terms of nominations... Instead of Beasts of the Southern Wild, which had four, nomination-wise, we would have had Tom Hooper here because Les Mis had eight nominations. Argo had five, but along with that also was Django, so Tarantino. Oh my god, yeah. Where's Tarantino? Mm -hmm. Screenplay winner. I mean, he wasn't in the directing conversation this season, but I think looking back, I would have put him up for director over picture. Django Unchained just seems like an odd picture nominee 10 years later again having made so much money it makes sense but it's a good oscar year to look back on and then i think just how did argo win we started to talk about this as we were getting into our review but i think the main reason that i always go back to is just that argo is a film where hollywood can watch it and think we did something that matters we saved people's lives hollywood can save people's lives And it feels good for them to vote for a movie like that. If you look at the other movies here, they don't feel good about themselves in any of these movies. Yeah, I mentioned earlier, it brings together so many stories and that elevates its audience that is able to watch and engage with it. So again, you're bringing more people in. I think that definitely worked with Academy voters. Mm -hmm. Other reasons, I mean, maybe there was some sympathy for Ben not showing up. There was a lot of backlash after he didn't make it in and maybe people were like you know what f you i'm voting for argo which is totally okay you know it was worthy i mean it's also the type of movie that i think would do really well on a preferential ballot and argo is a movie that celebrates crew members it celebrates makeup artists like all of these just people who are in the crew too where i feel like it could definitely reach across different branches and get votes yeah and as much as i may have wanted Beasts of the Southern Wild to win. Like, it is a tiny indie film, and if Little Miss Sunshine couldn't do that, this wasn't going to do that either. And in that same way, Amor wasn't going to. Was the wildly violent Django Unchained? No. Was the French musical going to do that? I don't think so. And was the war movie depicting torture going to win? No. It only leaves a couple, but again, it just makes sense that Argo was the more exciting choice 
that everyone could root for. And I think it does stand as a really good winner. The only other one that I think could have maybe won was Life of Pi, but it was more of a technical achievement. I definitely still see it as that. And, you know, while he won for directing, I think that was more than enough to award this movie. I don't think it needed Best Picture. Neither of those would be my choice for Best Picture. So let's get into our top fives here just quickly um, of how we would rank some of these if we did our preferential ballots and maybe how our opinions have changed since we were in college. So it's funny that in all of my rewatches, I have a top five, but I ended up rewatching three that weren't in my top five. That kind of solidified that it wasn't (laughs) worthy of a nomination. I have like a lower three that I didn't rewatch. Those are in alphabetical order, a more Beast of the Southern Wild and Django. I think back then I would have nominated Beasts just to be like in like I'm gonna do this, support indie films, support the small films that made it in. And then my top two would be Argo and Zero Dark Thirty. <sighs> God. And having to pick a top I'm just gonna say Argo because Zero Dark Thirty is very, very close though. I don't know, I'd probably keep my ballot until the very end. Go ahead, go through your top five and what you would choose. Okay, you're going to hate my list so much. My number five is Django Unchained because I I love Tarantino. My number four is actually Life of Pi. Did you like it on rewatch? I loved it on (laughs) rewatch. The animals like really held up for me. I really just thought they were so beautiful. And just I loved like the story about faith and humanity. And yeah, I love the framing devices. I thought it was it was really, really beautiful. I don't know how well it holds up as a best picture winner just of the year, just like because I don't think this is a movie people remember from this year. And if I'm thinking about other Ang Lee films, I just I prefer his others. I prefer Sense and Sensibility. I prefer Brokeback Mountain. I prefer Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So he is a filmmaker who I really love. I love tactile filmmakers who feel sort of immersed in nature. So he's definitely a filmmaker for me. Then I would go with Amour. I love Michael Haneke. And I think that this one, his movies are always so just like dark and depressing and kind of kill me. And this one is depressing as well, but I really do love the relationship at the center of it. I think it's it's really, really beautiful, and I love Emmanuel Riva so much. My number two would be Zero Dark Thirty. Um, it is just, I think, a really well-made film. It's a very tough rewatch, so I have not rewatched it, so maybe it would like move down a little bit, but I just remember seeing it at the time and being really floored by it, and by Jessica Chastain's performance and of course Catherine Bigelow as a director like making Mm -hmm. these movies that make men pay attention and my number one this will surprise absolutely zero people is Steven Spielberg's Lincoln (laughs) (laughs) it is just anchored by one of my favorite performances of course by Daniel Day-Lewis who I just think is the most singular original talent that we have and I hope and pray every day he comes out of retirement one day this performance is just a signature of the 2010s and he brings this historical figure to life he's still he's solid and just everything i just can want from a performance daniel day lewis gives me here in lincoln 
And I think also, I mean, we talked about the script for Argo being good, but I think a robbery occurred and Tony Kushner should have won the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar for his work in Lincoln. I think that what he and Spielberg do as a director writing pair is just, I mean, it's phenomenal work. I think that creating this historical story and not making it a boring biopic, at least for me, I understand that others might disagree with me because it is two and a half hours and very gray and blue, but I think creating a film that shows one of the greatest orators of all time and giving him monologues in a way that don't feel like stagey and over the top, but feel like they just belong to that character and capturing such a crucial moment in American history, just like makes my nerdy heart sing. And it was what I wanted to win back in 2012. So I haven't really changed much. Um, I have always loved Lincoln and I think that it's, it's a great achievement in Spielberg's career and it's sometimes seen as lesser than, I mean, I guess when you have a career that includes like Jaws and E.T. and Schindler's List, that's only natural, I suppose. But yeah, I love Lincoln. It would still be my winner. I did like Lincoln quite a bit more on rewatch. Good. So you will be happy to know that. I did love DDL. I loved Sally Field. I enjoyed a lot of the acting and the way the movie flowed. It was slow. Yeah, but I don't think that's an overwhelming reason to hate it. Because of the speeches, the screenplay is phenomenal. To imagine adapting this work and creating such a large body of work that is Lincoln is monstrous. Like, I couldn't imagine. Mm -hmm. And it's so eloquent. I think all of it works not only as this biopic, but as like a family drama as well. And, And looking behind the scenes at what was occurring within the family. Yeah, I just, I love it. I think it's great. And... That will surprise absolutely zero people who've listened to this podcast before. Okay, so that was our chat on the 2012 Oscars about Argo, our Best Picture winner. Maybe in the future we'll do some like singular episodes on some of these movies or multiple. I feel like we could still cover a different category and have a lot to say. Like I do think Life of Pi is just an incredible cinematography winner. You know, I Mm -hmm. kind of hate on the film. But looking back, like some of those shots, Ang Lee was just doing the very most. But I think it works in like this epic, grand way in this quiet story. So still lots to talk about, but I'm glad we got to talk about these today. Yeah. At some point, we can talk more about Richard Parker, the tiger, which I just (laughs) I loved that in the movie this time. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be doing another episode in our They Won for That series. This time we'll be talking about a cinematographer, the great Roger Deakins. He has two wins for Blade Runner 2049 in 1917. While I think both of those movies are good wins, we're going to be doing the same thing we sort of did with Quaron, where we'll decide if we think of his very extensive filmography, if those two are the right wins. I'm excited to talk about him he's I think such a fascinating creator and one of my favorites he's such a legend in this field and I think today he's like one of the most highly regarded cinematographers to work with and to find on screen and among the below the line categories having a name that many people can recognize isn't that common so I think for 
him to be so well known to have won on his 14th and 15th nomination is insane. So it'll be fun to look back through all of these movies. Listeners already know about, I think, one of the movies that I would give him a win for, but it'll be fun to talk about some other movies, maybe other films that he wasn't even nominated for that should be in here too. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about him. And we have a special announcement. We are officially finally launching our Patreon, which is so crazy. I feel like we've talked about like one day we'll be able to have a Patreon since like late 2020. And now I think we are finally at the point where we've decided to make it happen. We'll have more details like on Twitter and on Instagram for um, how to sign up for our Patreon. I'm so excited we're finally doing this. It's been a long time coming and it'll be fun to release different content. You know, I love what we do here on the pod, but having this separate extension of the podcast. So our official name for this will be Oscar Wilde After Dark. We'll be covering some different content and I'm excited. You know, it might get a little crazier than normal, which is also very fun. So I think it'll be fun to engage with you guys in a different way and seeing what you want us to watch and, you know, different tiers of interaction as well. Yeah, I think a thing that we've always talked about and we've called it Oscar Wilde After Dark for a long time, I think, like just the two of us, like when we've been like thinking of doing this, saying like, oh, we have to remember to cover this movie. We have to cover this movie. But the whole conceit of Oscar Wilde After Dark is that these movies and these topics will still have some sort of connection to the Oscars and we'll talk through like what that means, but they'll be a little bit more unfiltered or they'll be about movies where the star might be an Oscar winner, but they decided to do something a little bit weird, like having an episode (laughs) on Octavia Spencer deciding to make Ma, for instance, (laughs) like very, very excited to do that. So I think it gives us a little bit more freedom, especially as we get into Oscar season, where we sort of have to talk about the new in your Ritu. We have to talk about nominations coming up and things like that. This gives us a little bit of room to to talk about movies in a different way. And we've always tried to keep it fun and have a lot of variety. But I think with our first series, what we're going to do here and why Ben Affleck was sort of our teaser into this is that we will be covering the films of Benifer. So Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, we'll be talking about their collaboration on Geely. We have an Oscar-winning cinematographer, Robert Elswit, who shot that movie. We have, of course, <laughs> Oscar winner Ben Affleck, Oscar snubbed J-Lo. <laughs> we'll be talking about their movies, and um, I think it'll be a really fun way to kick it off. And of course, more Smasher Pass. It fits in very well. Yeah, again, with another theme, we'll be doing some erotic thrillers, getting into more horror, like you mentioned with Ma, that episode. God, I've been like dying to cover that for so long, finding a way to bring it into the pod. This is our mm-hmm. way of doing that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and of course, like we are so, so, so grateful to all of you for listening to our podcast, for supporting us. You know, whether you're a new listener or you've been listening since the very beginning, you mean a lot to us. So thank you so, so much. And of course, if you don't join the Patreon, we will still have great episodes coming to you on the regular feed that you can listen to all season. So we're not going to stop with our regular feed. We will keep it going very regularly like we do, but we just have more for you now, which is Mm -hmm. always exciting, I think. Yeah, we'll always have our 
content leading up to next year's Oscars. So don't you worry. We'll also have plenty of interviews coming for the award season and everything that we covered from last year. So just some variety again, everything we love. So thank you for listening. You can always follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wild Pod. And if you like our show, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. Again, thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye.